With his choice of words, Taki had outed an elephant in the room. It was true Nakamoto had enacted soft forks, but by late 2011, the network no longer operated as it did in those early days. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Now, I know yesterday's uh, read or the read previous episode we got, uh, I said I was going to have a guy's take for you, and I am actually still going to do that. But I actually, uh, after starting to get notes and ideas together, I really wanted to wrap it into another topic rather than exclusively doing one about Breed Love's piece. So it is coming. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. We are going to dig into some amazing things around the ideas laid out in Read 468. Bitcoin is hope. Um, uh, quick thank you to our sponsors. We've got Hexa Wallet, a great mobile wallet that is packed with features. Uh, we got the secure and easy to use Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. And today we've actually got a new one for the show. Uh, we'll talk about it in just a bit, but this is going to blow your mind. Level.co, and that's level without uh, vowels, so just LVL. But this is the first free Bitcoin exchange checking account, FDIC insured, hosted wallet, debit card. This thing is a full-on Bitcoin banking service and exchange. Uh, Level.co, we'll get a little bit more into it later. But today's read is from Bitcoin Magazine, and it's amazing. Uh, it does get into a little bit of technical stuff, but it's really talking about a part of Bitcoin's history that's not well known. The first war in the Bitcoin protocol. This is written by Pete Rizzo and Aaron Van Werdum, uh, both returning authors. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into today's article, The Battle for P2SH, The Untold Story of the First Bitcoin War. Quote, Push the date back two months. Op underscore eval just is not ready yet. It was the verdict Gavin Andreessen had worked so long to avoid. With a single rebuke sent from Russell O'Connor's keyboard, a months-long effort to upgrade Bitcoin, the first in the wake of the founder Satoshi Nakamoto's exit, was abruptly stalled ahead of implementation. As revealed by O'Connor, the proposed command, heralded by Andreessen as the fastest path to more secure Bitcoin wallets, could be exploited to create transactions that would send the software into an infinite computational loop in an attempt to validate them. In short, op-eval could be abused to crash Bitcoin nodes, and thus, the Bitcoin network. Quote, It took me all of 70 minutes of looking to find this bug, O'Connor wrote, condemning a process that had merged and nearly pushed bad code into the live software. You guys need to stop what you're doing and really understand Bitcoin. It was the first serious setback for Andreessen, the project's new lead, who was quick to protest. In his view, abandoning op eval wouldn't just waste months of coding and review, it would leave users without tools to protect against the Trojans and viruses then plundering their digital wallets. This was at the heart of op eval's appeal. 
easy multi-signature wallets would allow users to recover Bitcoin even when backups were lost. Services might be built to send bank-like alerts, deterring fraud and theft, and better still, this could all be achieved in transactions that would look and behave like those users knew and understood. But O'Connor's words of warning were enough for those who had seen their concerns about the escalating pace of development validated. Quote, I would like to remind everyone that we are messing with a more than $20 million thing, developer Alan Reiner would write. There's more than just a piece of software at stake. Whatever goes in needs to be as hard as diamond. The failure of op eval would yet have bigger implications. It was true Nakamoto had launched the world's first decentralized digital currency, but its promise was far from fulfilled. Few in late 2011 understood its code, and fewer still possessed the skill and familiarity to safeguard it. How should these developers organize? What responsibilities did they have to users? And how would they enact change when it wasn't clear who, if anyone, should have the final say? Such questions would soon be thrust to the fore in the first great battle over the Bitcoin software. An unorthodox succession. Free and open source projects are most often led by founders who in turn must align efforts with contributors on whom their work depends. Still, where disputes of direction arise, they are imbued with a natural authority to act as decision-makers for their creations. Bitcoin early on was no exception. For the first two years of its existence, Nakamoto played the role of lead developer and benevolent dictator. As Bitcoin's undisputed leader, he enacted as many as eight protocol changes without much resembling a wider discourse. That is, until he gradually stepped away from the project. By the end of 2010, Nakamoto would erase their pseudonym from the Bitcoin.org website, leaving veteran 3D graphics developer Gavin Andreessen to claim the mantle as the project's, quote, de facto lead. Andreessen's preferred choice of words was appropriate, as the circumstances surrounding this transition were unusual amounting to a brief public message, a private passing of duties, and the exchange of a key allowing the user to send a system-wide alert message. Still, at the time, this posed few difficulties for Bitcoin's small but growing group of coders. Most were concerned about critical fixes, and Andreessen, the spouse of a tenured professor, had the time and enthusiasm to lead the work. Indeed, there were many pressing needs, faster syncing, better testing, but the quote, increased reports of stolen wallets and the bad PR that the thefts caused quickly emerged as a top concern. For a time, it was a goal on which Bitcoin's new band of contributors all seemed to agree. Bear Multisig Luckily, the blueprint of a solution had been provided by Nakamoto. As Andreessen would learn, Bitcoin's code already enabled users to create secure transactions that could only be spent when signed with multiple private keys. With multi-signature, or multi-sig for short, private keys could be stored on multiple devices, on opposite ends of the world, or shared between a user and a wallet service, meaning hackers would have to compromise multiple targets to steal coins. 
Enamored with the idea, Andreessen would become its first champion, pinning an impassioned plea on the mailing list to inspire contributors to action. Quote, My biggest worry is we'll say, sure, it'll only take a couple of days to agree on how to do it right, and six months from now, there is still no consensus, he wrote, and people's wallets will continue to get lost or stolen. The worries weren't without weight. As implemented by Nakamoto, multisig had significant drawbacks. The most pressing of these was that the transactions were incompatible with Bitcoin's standard address format and instead required much longer addresses. Because of this, transactions funding multisig wallets were bigger and required higher fees. What's more is these fees had to be paid not by the person receiving Bitcoin with the multisig wallet, but by the person sending Bitcoin to them. Due to these suboptimal properties, multi-sig transactions were designated as non-standard in the software, meaning they wouldn't necessarily propagate to nodes on the network. If a node did receive a multi-sig transaction, it would simply ignore it. Similarly, there was no guarantee miners would include these transactions in blocks. If they were included, nodes would accept them. Multi-sig transactions were ultimately valid. But in practice, the designation made it all but impossible to get these transactions confirmed. Enter Op Eval. To unlock the potential he saw, Andreessen would go on to champion a new opcode, a type of command that nodes could use to decide if and when new types of transactions should be valid. Designed to accommodate more advanced transactions like multisig, OpEval leaned heavily on hashes, the cryptographic trick that scrambles and compresses data deterministically but irreversibly into a unique string of numbers. First proposed by the pseudonymous developer Bytecoin, the basic idea was that users could hash instructions detailing the conditions under which Bitcoin could later be spent, including to and from multisig wallets, by including this hash in a transaction coins would essentially be sent to a hash. The conditions required to later spend the Bitcoin would only be revealed when the coins were spent from the hash. A multisig user would pay for the added transaction size when she spent the coins, while the extra data required posed a smaller burden on the network. As the proposal received positive feedback, Andreessen didn't waste any time preferring to get OpEval deployed sooner rather than later. Security is a really high priority on the list. I'd like to see secured Bitcoin addresses in people's forum signatures within a year, he wrote. Not everyone shared Andreessen's sense of urgency, however. OpEval would be a big upgrade on a live system already carrying millions of dollars in value. Across the ocean from Andreessen, a young Amir Taki suggested developers take time to review the proposal. It seems good at first glance, Taki wrote, but fast-tracking this into the blockchain is probably not a wise idea. Bitcoin is not exploding tomorrow, so there's no big loss from holding off on momentous changes like these. Further complicating matters, developers assumed adding OpEval to the protocol would pose a significant coordination challenge. In essence, enacting it would require risking that the blockchain, the definitive record of all Bitcoin transactions, 
enforced by the shared consensus on its software rules, might split into incompatible networks. This meant that as soon as OpEval went live, every user would have to switch over to a new version of the software and a new blockchain in what was called a hard fork upgrade. Fail to upgrade in unison, and miners might unknowingly produce invalid blocks. Even worse, users might unknowingly accept invalid transactions. A new kind of soft fork. Soon enough, however, Andreessen realized it was possible to assuage his detractors. As a nifty trick, he uncovered that OpEval could be deployed by redefining one of several inactive opcodes originally included by Nakamoto as placeholders for future commands. To the surprise of everyone, including Andreessen, this would also be compatible with the nodes that didn't upgrade to accept OpEval. These nodes would check that the hash matched the new instructions, but wouldn't enforce them, instead accepting the transactions by default. As long as a majority of miners enforced the new rules, this meant that the new blockchain would be considered valid by both upgraded and non-upgraded nodes. Upgraded nodes would accept the blockchain because the new rules were being enforced, while nodes that failed to upgrade would accept the blockchain because they didn't care about the new rules either way. Such backwards-compatible upgrades, or, quote, soft forks, had already been deployed by Nakamoto. But as the network had grown in size, developers had begun to worry about the sheer number of people who would need to be involved in any upgrade. Unsurprisingly, Andreessen's realization that this could be avoided was welcomed by other established contributors, with whom he quickly shared the news. Quote, Wow, Gavin's point that op-eval can be done without a split blew my mind, Gregory Maxwell remarked, reacting to the discovery in real time. Bring out the champagne. With this, developers went on to devise an even more secure method for activating softworks. They theorized they could conduct something like a poll to determine when a feature had broad enough support from miners, which they could then use to ensure a safe upgrade. Miners would be asked to include a bit of data in the blocks they mined to signal that they would enforce the new rules. When a majority were ready, the change could be activated. The Fatal Flaw But all this work was undone by O'Connor's findings. The result was a split into factions, with some holding that OpEval was being unnecessarily delayed, and others arguing the quick fixes proposed would impair certain desired properties of Bitcoin's essential scripting language. Developers, including Luke Dasher, Peter Wella, and Maxwell, suggested alternatives which, like OpEval, utilized the concept of sending coins, quote, to a hash. But the challenge was still to get this logic, which they started referring to as pay-to-script hash, or P2SH, into Bitcoin as a soft fork and avoid a blockchain split. Existing opcodes could only go so far. Non-upgraded nodes would need to accept transactions that spent coins from hashes without understanding the new rules. It was Andreessen who found a path forward, and his specific P2SH solution 
wouldn't require a new opcode at all. Rather, Andreessen's idea was that Bitcoin could be programmed to recognize a certain format of transactions and then interpret this format in an unconventional way to validate it using new instructions. Any node that did not upgrade would interpret the unconventional format using conventional logic. Like with OpEval, the transaction would always be considered valid by non-upgraded nodes. This meant that P2SH could be deployed as a soft fork, so long as a majority of hash power enforced the new rules. Both old and new nodes would agree on the same blockchain. Andreessen's proposal appeared satisfactory to most. Quote, Seems acceptable from first glance, O'Connor responded. Taki, referring to the code's unconventional approach, said, The idea is a hack, but I like it. At a subsequent developer meeting, the sentiment held, and attendees agreed to implement Andreessen's P2SH proposal. Miners would be polled in the week leading up to February 1st, and if the majority of hash power, 55%, signaled support, a client would be released to activate the soft fork just two weeks later. The peace would last all of a few days. Why not use US dollars? Breaking the consensus would be Dasher, who had had to leave the meeting early and only later learned Andreessen's version of P2SH had been the accepted compromise. The unconventional nature of Andreessen's solution irked Dasher, who believed it complicated the protocol and brought uncertain consequences down the line. He raised the issue with Andreessen, but the latter was unconvinced that his concerns merited a change of plans. His suggestions spurned, Dasher would erupt on the public Bitcoin talk forum in mid-January, denouncing P2SH and charging that Andreessen was, quote, on his own in supporting the change. Quote, Gavin is forcing everyone using the latest Bitcoin code to vote for P2SH, he wrote. If you want to oppose this insane protocol change, you will need to modify your Bitcoin D source code or you will be voting in favor of it by default. Due to the nuance of his objections, the brash tenor in which they were delivered, and his accusations about Andreessen, responses to the post were less than positive. Instead of limiting the technical debate to developers, some perceived Dasher as trying to incite a popular mob. It didn't help that Dasher was one of the project's more quixotic contributors, known for his long arguments in defense of alternative number systems and strong Christian faith. One forum user said Dasher's comments made him look, quote, mentally unstable. Another said he didn't want to bother with the specifics at all. He simply trusted Andreessen. In response, Dasher launched a sustained objection to the P2SH protocol on philosophical grounds, disputing not just its technical merits, but its implications for governance. Quote, if you want a monarchical currency, why not just use the Fed's USD? Dasher asked his detractors, only to be hounded by users claiming it was he who was vying for power. Not backing down, Dasher would code an alternative version of P2SH called Check Hash Verify, CHV. CHV was essentially a different P2SH implementation, but it didn't require an unconventional interpretation of transaction outputs. 
Instead, CHV added a new opcode that, like opEval, could be disguised as a placeholder opcode. But for Andreessen, it was too late for more debate. Fuming over the public outburst, he responded with his own, writing, Luke, you try my patience. I'm going to step away from the code for a few days to calm down before I do something stupid. Genjix goes public. As Andreessen's P2SH design, now referred to simply as P2SH, was largely seen as a good enough solution, preferred by the project's lead developer, Dasher found himself with few defenders. It would fall on Amir Taki to be the minority voice to take fringe concerns seriously, but not because he opposed Andreessen's solution or necessarily agreed with Dasher's. The developer, then in his early 20s, was already one of Bitcoin's most outspoken contributors. And while he had yet to become the headline-grabbing anarchist who hacked from squats and traveled with 3D-printed gunrunners, his vision for the software as an anti-establishment movement had already pushed him out of the project's inner circle. This, in turn, had made Taki distrustful of the project's accelerating development process. He preferred it if the decision-making process took time and involved the broader user base. In his view, Bitcoin wasn't served well by a small cabal of developers calling the shots. Taki strongly felt that anyone with an interest in the project should be aware of the trade-offs and, insofar as possible, participate in the decision-making. Quote, I'd rather people have a say in the matter, even if it makes life tougher for developers to explain their decisions, he told other developers. I feel a bit apprehensive about telling our users, this is how it will be, and you have no say, and then giving them the middle finger. Even if Taki agreed that the difference between Andreessen's P2SH and Dasher's CHV proposals was small, he persisted that getting users involved in the development process was an important exercise. Quote, My worry is someday Bitcoin becomes corrupted. See this extra scrutiny as an opportunity to build a culture of openness, he argued. To this effect, Taki wrote a blog post in which he laid out the P2SH and CHV upgrades and the differences between the two. Users had a choice, was Taki's message, and quote, voting is based on mining power. A fucked up situation. With his choice of words, Taki had outed an elephant in the room. It was true, Nakamoto had enacted soft forks, but by late 2011, the network no longer operated as it did in those early days. When Nakamoto published the white paper in 2008, he assumed proof of work would be supplied by users contributing computations via personal computers. Quote, proof of work is essentially one CPU, one vote, Nakamoto had written. Under this design, any user could be a miner and secure the network by proposing blocks, validating transactions sent by peers, and enforcing the code authored by developers. But in the years since the software's launch, this model had been obsoleted by entrepreneurs, since Laszlo Hynieks, of Bitcoin Pizza fame, had figured out how to generate Bitcoin with more powerful graphics processing units or GPUs, Specialists had been busy turning mining from a hobby 
into a small enterprise. Around the same time, Merrick, quote, slush palatinus, introduced a method to allow miners to pool the hash power needed to propose blocks and share the profits. This effectively made mining less of a lottery and more a stable source of income. By late 2011, just three pools, DeepBit, Slush Pool, and BTC Guild, controlled well over half of global hash power. Instead of one CPU, one vote, most of the, quote, votes were now concentrated in just a few mining pool operators, as if they were representatives of their cyber constituents. To some, it was proof that something was wrong on the Bitcoin network. Quote, I see a mining pool deciding a change in the network as a farce of a vote, early miner Midnight Magic argued. To others, mining centralization was an unfortunate crutch, a way to make a soft fork upgrade more manageable and therefore less risky. After all, a safe rollout now required the participation of just a handful of mining pool operators. Maxwell, for example, was more resigned to an unsatisfactory reality at hand. Quote, If there was non-trivial pushback, both the devs and pools would back off, but no one seems much opposed to it now in any case, he replied. It's a good mechanism to use for the future, when hopefully we won't have this fucked up situation where Bitcoin is no longer decentralized. To vote or not to vote. That Andreessen and Dasher's warring proposals would come to embody opposing views on Bitcoin governance would only complicate matters. Up until then, developers had always spoken about the upcoming soft fork upgrade as a kind of vote. Miners could enforce the new rules outlined by P2SH or op eval with a hash power majority, so a vote was meant to gauge the likelihood of this outcome. But while the terminology had become part of the lexicon, this omitted some technical nuance. In conducting a poll, developers weren't exactly asking miners what they thought of the new rules. Rather, they saw this as a way to see if miners were ready to ensure a safe upgrade. From that perspective, it made sense to developers that only one proposal would be added to the software that users and miners would run to enforce the network rules. Quote, The Bitcoin system is not up for a majority election. Not a majority of hash power, not a majority of people, not a majority of money, Maxwell argued, annoyed by Taki's framing of the decision as a vote. Maxwell felt strongly that minor, quote, votes should be limited, as they were in the software itself, to enforcing the order of transactions, not the rules of the entire network. Quote, what happens if a supermajority, even 100% of the current miners, decide that the subsidy should be 50 Bitcoin forever? Nothing. Miners who change that rule in their software simply stop existing from the perspective of the Bitcoin network, he wrote. Dasher didn't disagree with Maxwell, but in practice, it was hard for him to see how Bitcoin would remain secure should developers push changes without miner support. Quote, Miners can simply refuse to mine P2SH transactions to be immune to the development team's changes, he responded. If the developers lock out all the miners, guess what happens? Easy 50% attacks. The network is left unsecured. 
Seen in this light, it's easier to understand why Dasher believed Andreessen was abusing his role as lead developer by attempting to push P2SH alone. If a miner used the standard software to mine a block, it would cast a vote in favor of P2SH automatically. In response, Dasher wrote patches that would enter his preferred proposal into the hash power, quote, election, introducing the option for miners to vote both for and against P2SH and CHV. Although few miners used the code, Dasher's opposition had an effect. Tycho, the operator of DeepBit, then the world's biggest mining pool, began to grow uncomfortable with his role in evaluating the competing code. Arguing it was clear no consensus among developers had yet been reached, he wrote, quote, I don't want to become the single entity to decide on this. Deadlock In rejecting the idea that a mining pool could, even as a convenience, be used to sway an upgrade decision, Tycho added another twist to the debate at hand. Without his support amounting to over 30% of all hash power, P2SH would have a difficult time being activated. By late January, the first P2SH voting round was drawing to a close, and it didn't look like it was going to meet its required threshold. The upgrade would have to be delayed, a reality that frustrated not just Andreessen, but other developers as well. On IRC, Maxwell publicly lamented that there appeared no end in sight to the deadlock. Quote, this hurry meme is bullshit. Gavin started on the pay-to-script hash route in, what, October? He wrote. As far as I can tell, unless someone draws a deadline, this process will never converge because there will always be some next guy whose great idea was left out. Andreessen would lay the blame for the delay not on the advent of mining pools, but on DeepBit's operator Tycho personally. Right now, it looks like one person has enough hashing power to veto any change, he wrote. This bothered Andreessen, who saw Tycho's stance as unethical. Quote, I think it is wrong of you to use your position as the biggest pool operator to go against the general consensus, he wrote. Indeed, even when Andreessen went so far as to apply public pressure, pushing users to ask their mining pools to upgrade, and offering to reimburse all of DeepBit's funds in the event that P2SH led to any financial loss, Tycho was unwilling to, quote, vote for the proposal. Faced with the delay, Andreessen made an attempt to marshal the public to the cause, persisting in his conviction that the choice between P2SH and CHV would have little impact on users. Andreessen wrote, All of the P2SH-CHV stuff is mostly engineers arguing over whether it is better to use a nail, a screw, or glue to put two pieces of wood together. Any of the solutions would work, and ordinary users wouldn't notice any difference. Judging by the responses in the thread, Bitcoin users accepted Andreessen's frame, blaming Tycho for holding back the fork and pressuring him to activate. Tycho, in turn, fiercely objected to Andreessen's assertion. Even with 30% of the hash power, he knew the remaining miners could overrule him, and he didn't want to be the deciding factor. Round 2 With P2SH having failed so far to accumulate sufficient hash power support, Andreessen would be increasingly forced to discuss strategy for his proposal in the open, 
and he notably began accepting CHV as a potential alternative to break the deadlock. Still, responses drew a dividing line between those who believed the choice between P2SH and CHV was for minors to make, and those who favored a more meritocratic decision-making. Ultimately, miners are the only people who have any say over issues like this. Bitcoin Talk user Douglas argued, they're the only ones who decide which transactions get into blocks. The forum's administrator, Thamos, rejected this idea outright. Quote, non-miners can reject blocks. If enough clients do this, the coins that miners mine will become worthless. Instead, Thamos proposed that a certain inner circle of experts should engage in a two-week discussion and issue a vote at the end. Either because of the suggestion or happenstance, Dasher soon created a wiki where a roster of respected developers could voice their preference. Over the next few days, Maxwell, Thomas, and Wella all indicated they'd be happy to accept either P2SH or CHV, though they made clear they preferred P2SH. O'Connor and Dasher agreed that P2SH was acceptable, but voiced a preference for CHV. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Andreessen made sure to sway the ballot in favor of P2SH, registering a resounding no against the CHV proposal. More importantly, perhaps very few miners were supporting CHV. By mid-February, P2SH was supported by 30% of the hash power, while Dasher's alternative was stuck around 2%. During a meeting on IRC, Dasher said he was considering whether to withdraw CHV altogether, begrudgingly accepting P2SH's dominance. At that same meeting, attendees agreed to set a second voting deadline for March 1st. As the new deadline approached, more miners gathered behind P2SH, bringing hash power support close to the 55% threshold. Soon, both Tycho and Dasher were left with no other choice but to accept their peers' preferences. With that, Andreessen announced that the soft fork would be deployed and activated within 10 days, and by April 1, 2012, the new rules were enforced. Pay to script hash, the first protocol upgrade since Satoshi's departure, had been enacted. A Tempest in a Teapot the difficult political process that had led to the passage of P2SH would continue to have a lasting impact outside the software itself. In the end, Andreessen had been able to deploy the solution he both designed and favored. If it can be said that his leadership was questioned amid the crisis, by the end, it was firmly cemented. Public opinion, unconcerned with specifics, largely coalesced against the actions of Dasher, and to a lesser extent, Taki, deeming them unnecessary and inflammatory. Andreessen went so far as to ask Dasher to stop contributing to Bitcoin entirely, though it appears he either backed down from that threat or else Dasher simply ignored it. Meanwhile, Maxwell became one of Bitcoin's core developers, sharing commit access to the project with Andreessen and contributors Vladimir van der Laan and Jeff Garzik. The tone had been set. When it came to Bitcoin development, a supportive, pragmatic attitude was rewarded and contrarian contributors were dismissed. While ideological differences had surfaced, 
they remained and were arguably only entrenched by the proceedings. With more users flocking to Bitcoin by the day, P2SH shortly passed into lore, though it would notably continue to serve as a flashpoint in disagreements among developers. Recalling the events a year later in response to another emerging crisis, Andreessen would boast in ways that suggest he believed P2SH validated his leadership and vision for the project. Quote, The block size will be raised, he wrote in response to a video produced by developer Peter Todd advocating against the limit increase in early 2013. Quote, Your video will just make a lot of people worried about nothing, in exactly the same way Luke Jr.'s proposal last year did nothing but caused a tempest in a teapot. How should decisions be made for the first decentralized digital currency? If the question had finally been asked, it would take a wider war, still years in the future, to resolve it. And that concludes the battle for P2SH, the untold story of the first Bitcoin war. Now, I want to uh, dig a little bit into this um, before we close out today's show. Um, but a uh, uh, really, really great article. Uh, Aaron Van Wertham and Pete Rizzo. Uh, can't really go wrong with both of them. <laughs> I love all of their stuff. But let's go ahead real quick and hit our new sponsor, and then we will jump back into Guy's take on this piece. Level.co, and that's LVL.co, so drop the vowels. These guys are bringing something amazing to the Bitcoin space. This is the first free exchange and banking services in North America. The Level Mobile app lets you buy and sell Bitcoin without any trading fees or hidden spreads. So the free version gets you free Bitcoin trading, a hosted wallet, a FDIC-insured checking account, wires, checks, and direct deposit, and uh, you can purchase for $10 a MasterCard debit card. Get the premium for just $9 a month and you have access to an autopilot trading bot, 30% off of some of the other transaction fees, chat with a dedicated private banker, and a Metal World Debit MasterCard. And the best thing about the Metal card, there is no fee nor a spread to spend cash from Bitcoin on the card. It is available in 28 states right now and they expect to be uh, available to 94% of the U.S. population by the end of 2021, with the exception of, sorry, everybody in New York. But this is an incredible new service, a full-on suite of Bitcoin banking services, and you should definitely check it out today at lvl.co. All right, so this piece by Aaron Van Wertham and uh, Pete Rizzo was uh, just an awesome really really great piece of bitcoin's history and really set out like this was this was truly the groundwork um or i guess you could say the ideological divide that led to the block size wars and um and and really what was happening was that the the overall the the overall change the technical change itself andreessen actually had a point in his comment this was engineers arguing about uh, nails, screws, um, and, uh, and glue, you know, for putting together, uh, you know, two pieces of wood. Um, and from a technical standpoint, that was the case. That was, that's kind of a decent analogy is that 
they were very minor technical changes to some of these protocols or to, to the uh, alternatives that were available. But the really big thing was that this was an ideological difference about how to change Bitcoin because a lot of developers and even some of the community were beginning to see um, and recognize with uh, Taki and Dasher kind of leading the, the calling out the problem that was occurring within the network or occurring within the social space, that there was a lot of control in a very small group of people. And uh, it was increasingly uh, not liked that this was the case. Um, because the whole idea was to keep this thing decentralized, was the, to keep it secure from undesirable changes. And if we're talking about just one lead developer deciding what it's going to be, and then that person getting their way on the whole Bitcoin network, that's not what that is. You know, that's, that's where 90% of altcoins went. And Taki had a great comment, which uh, I'm not sure if y'all know the, the history about Amir Taki. He's a... <laughs> fascinating uh and uh as as he said uh uh attention grabbing or headline grabbing um a bitcoin anarchist but he was really really big back in the day and uh, i was a really big fan of some of his points um particularly his view during this whole matter is he said i'd rather people have a say in the matter even if it makes life tougher for developers to explain their decisions i feel a bit apprehensive about telling our users this is how it will be, you have no say, and then giving them the finger. Now I remember reading and like digging into these discussions back then, because this was like, this was the first like thing that happened in Bitcoin, like right after I kind of stumbled upon it. And I wish I had paid closer attention then, but I always thought that that, that in particular, his comments and the thinking around that made a whole lot of sense. Granted, I was really ignorant about just about anything at, the, at this point. Um, I was kind of I was as fresh as it gets uh, during those days and wondering what the hell was going on and I'd even gotten myself into. But I think the the challenge that they uh, had posed um, wasn't about the technical issues um, and that it was just kind of increasingly hard to define. It's still, to this day, really hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but it was an ideological difference about how changes would actually be made to Bitcoin, what the role that nodes actually played in this. And it's funny that really then a lot of the theories, I guess you could say, or the kind of the foundations of uh, how the game theory would play out and uh, where the real security in the network was, or, or basically the dynamic, the relationship between the different, uh, different types of security and um, protection for the network were beginning to be laid out during this time. And the discussions were being had, but we'd never seen it. You know, it was never actually in real life, like, let's see what the, the network, let's see the network test this live. But that is what led to the block size debate. And Gavin's arrogance going into that was absolutely a big factor in disliking the position they took that, no, it's going to happen and you can suck it. it. It was basically, we're going to do it, and you, uh, there's not really anything you can say. And that actually tested the game theory. That, that said, okay, well, what kind of control do developers have? 
What kind of control do miners have? What about the big businesses? What really is the dynamic here if, uh, if the users don't want to be told what to do or uh, the, the investors, the people who have you know, put their skin in the game, what if they don't like being told that this is going to be the future of Bitcoin and uh, they want to do something different or they want to prevent the miners or a group of developers or whoever it is forcing a change on people. And this is, this is where all the reluctance, this is where all the, um, uh, the kind of uh, incredibly conservative mentality was beginning to be born from. Uh, and uh, O'Connor, uh, it starts this out with O'Connor uh, basically finding a bug in one of the very early versions of this and you know, talking about like his words of warning um, were basically vindication for people who were beginning to be concerned about how fast it was like, oh, let's push out code. Oh, let's hard fork. Let's get this done. Um, and, you know, force them essentially to do, uh, to move this to a soft fork rather than a hard fork solution. But this is exactly why you move slow. Rushing the code is just an absolutely terrible precedent to set. And I think it's mostly because, because Bitcoin became so valuable and it was essentially the bedrock of this, that that precedent got overturned, even though it was kind of early on that was how it was treated because it was just software at the time. And it wasn't until many years later that we're talking about making modifications to something that's billions of dollars in value. Um, uh, but... This is one of the, this is the major ideological, this is the major like philosophical difference between Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto and altcoin space. And, you know, you'll hear somebody like you know, people over at Bcash that, oh, Bitcoin was taken over by Blockstream and it was hijacked by developers. And anybody who actually pays attention to this knows what a ridiculous comment that is. There's ever since that day nobody none of the de developers agree on anything the idea that this is some sort of conspiracy that they have taken over shit when all they do is argue and like like agonize about even like a couple of people like like they hate it when there isn't an argument that's actually what's led to a lot of the reluctance around taproot even though there's a whole lot of support as they're like who's going to take the reins on this i don't want this responsibility I don't want to be modifying the code and like nobody's giving a pushback. Why aren't people pushing back against this? Um, so it, it's exactly the opposite is they're so overly concerned about not getting pushback against really important changes because it puts too much power in their hands. And exact, that's exactly how the conversation goes. And this was the ultimate problem with uh, Segwit and the block size increase is they they basically posed it again and you'll hear the history from the altcoin and the the bcash the big blocker side I guess you could say big cash bcash and uh, BSV and all of those other chains they'll look back on it and just talk about the technical differences and they'll talk about one megabyte blocks and a versus two megabyte blocks and how it was no big deal and all this stuff but they'll completely completely avoid the conversation about how changes should be made. And that was the conversation. And it's kind of, it's very similar to what Andreessen did is that, oh, you know, this is just about whether they're going to use screws, glues, or nails. It's like, no, it's about whether or not you are going to make the decision or a, a large, diverse group of people are going to come to consensus 
themselves and that this is going to be the network upgrading or is this going to be the maintainers telling everybody to upgrade? That was always the discussion. That was always the contention and that was absolutely the contention about whether or not we were going to hard fork or soft fork to get um, extra space in, uh, in the blocks, like get additional transaction throughput. And ultimately, this led us to Segwit2x. This led us to um, the user-activated soft fork, which basically put the nail in the coffin. It, it, it brought this thing back in as about as loud and in the forefront as it could possibly be uh, and finally settled it. Uh, both settled, A, the, I, the philosophy around making changes to Bitcoin, B, it really set in stone um, how long, how much, what a longer time frame should really be thought of in, uh, in these changes. It also basically broke the presumption that miners who are signaling are voting in the social sphere as if they are going to decide whether or not this is getting implemented. Um, and, uh, and then it also cemented without question for anybody who actually paid attention the role of nodes and the power that nodes have to reject a change that is undesirable to the network most more specifically a hard fork change and the conclusion of that um the those precedents that have been set and protected uh, since that time i think is what has led to the greatest uh degree of trust and integrity in the bitcoin system uh that literally separates it makes makes it night and day to uh, all the altcoin comparisons there's just nothing can, that can compete because nothing even comes close to the the amount of care uh review and conviction to preventing a single source of decision making from reappearing in the bitcoin system and i really love alan reiner's quote um, which is always just a great analogy for kind of trying to understand the complications and issues with development on a system like this and exactly what is at stake is he says, I would like to remind everyone, this is the first part of it, I would like to remind everyone that we are messing with a $20 million or more than $20 million thing. Uh, and uh, I heard a, uh, I'm not sure who it was, I think it was like Maxwell or somebody, but this, is, this analogy has been used by many people since then. Um, is that uh, Bitcoin development is like doing maintenance on an engine on a plane, on like a 747 that's carrying everybody in the Bitcoin space while it is a thousand feet in the air and it is flying to its destination. And they are trying to, you know, take things out and put things into this engine without crashing the plane and killing everybody inside. And to think that, you know, alternatives or altcoins treat this like a move fast and break things you begin to understand what it is a great analogy to, to try to wrap your head around the the ethos of this is mission critical software and we are going to be as careful as humanly possible in doing this soft forks don't you know you notice that uh, P2SH here, um, uh, previous changes to the protocol required just 55% of the miners to reach the threshold now, the only two proposals for Taproot are 90 and 95%. The reluctance to put this thing at risk becomes greater and greater. And that's why I think uh, in the not-too-distant future, um, outside of very minor cleanups and 
maybe very, very long-term changes to the protocol is that Bitcoin will largely ossify, um, that this thing will uh, basically stop in the vast majority of its development and essentially become that bedrock. Uh, and I think the only, the only uh, alternative to that or the only uh, case in which it will be really important to make some sort of a change or solve for is if, you know, the nuclear scenario where it appears that quantum computing may actually pose a threat in the not-too-distant future or something like that, um, and we need to actually go to some sort of other encryption algorithm or something like that. But I find that increasingly unlikely. The more and more I actually learn about it, uh, the, less it the less it looks like much of anything. But we'll, do, we'll probably do an episode more seriously about that um, in the not-too-distant future. Um, real quick, though, I wanted to uh, hit the last part of Alan Reiner's quote, which I just think... Uh, is just so beautiful um, and perfectly hits uh, how important this thing is. Before we close it out, let's thank our sponsors one more time. Hexel Wallet actually just got to do their recovery process twice um, uh, over the weekend, uh, and it was pretty cool that it was seedless, and I just kind of scanned a handful of QR codes and then rebuilt my wallet, uh, so that was really neat. Uh, and then uh, more and more I'm using my Bitbox O2, the more I love it. I've had a lot of people say it really is the best, like the most user-friendly option out there. And then, of course, our new sponsor, Level.co, uh, LVL.co. This service is going to be a big deal, and I'm a little bit infuriated that they are not in North Carolina yet. But fingers crossed, don't forget to check them out for a free uh, Bitcoin exchange with no fees and Bitcoin banking services. So thank you to those guys for supporting the Audible of the Bitcoin space. Now, this last comment that Alan Reiner, the second half of it, was that uh, there is more than just a piece of software at stake. Whatever goes in needs to be as hard as a diamond. And I just thought that was such a cool quote, is that this is, this is what it's about. It's about having the community, the network itself, defend a set of consensus rules and any and everything within the code that is run is as hard as a diamond. Because then and only then do we secure a monetary policy that's harder than gold and one that is provably secure from political capture. And with that as our foundation, as hard as diamond, we can build anything on top of it and that's what we're gonna do thank you guys so much for listening to bitcoin audible i have got some great reads and episodes coming for the rest of the week so don't miss it and until next time everybody take it easy This has been a 111 production and you were listening to this on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network.